one, one of my podcast friends who went to see it with me, um, he, he said that he felt like every time he watched a Jaeger punch a monster in the head, it was like Guillermo del Toro punching Michael Bay in the head and say, that is how you make <laughs> action movies. Show opener. <laughs> <laughs> this is episode 52 of the Movie Bite podcast, where we discuss, praise, lament, or lampoon movies, TV shows, and more. Today is Wednesday, July 17th, 2013, and I am your host, TJ. And today I have with me, uh, again, uh, second time on the show, Mike Fizzle. How are you? I am well, man. I hope you are the same. I'm doing okay. I've uh, I've had a slight head cold. I, I tend to get these little kind of nagging things, and it's uh, just just not a lot, but a little bit, you know, that just kind of annoys me. So, and I've started a new job, and then so yeah, there's there's lots of things going on, but I'm doing well. Uh, got the to show. See. The show must go on. The show must go on. That's right. And uh, you know, Chad, we've been trying him out as our primary uh, uh, new co-host along with me, and uh, he's not with us this week. That's because he's slacking. You know, he's he had to go on some vacation or something or other with his family. I don't know. It was just you know, whatever it is that he does, fine. You know, it's just it's just you know. I'm starting. I'm starting to get a complex. You know, people leaving leaving me on my own here on the show. So, but it's all right. No, I, I like Chad. I think he's going to work out. I think so too. Yeah, I think so. I've I've enjoyed having him on the show. So, uh, I actually had contacted Joe and I said, "Hey, if uh, if I can't get a hold of of Mike because I had contacted you last night at the last minute and uh, asked if you could be on the show and you were apparently recording your own show and then I so I went and I." Uh, I, I asked Joe, I said, if I can't get a hold of uh, Mike, can you be on the show? I know you haven't seen Pacific Rim, but i got to talk to somebody, right? I can't, <laughs> can't just do one by myself. And he, he was going to be on, uh, but then, then I got a message from you this morning. So all was well. I'm all good. was well. All right. Well, shall we get started in, uh, evaluating and analyzing and talking about trailers? In a world. In a world. 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 In a world. All right. So this week, the new trailers are uh, trailers and clips. This is a uh, clip from Wolverine. He interrupts a funeral. There's another Wolverine clip and a short featurette. We have a trailer for the upcoming film Saving Mr. Banks, uh, starring Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson. Uh, trailer for Christian Bale and Zoe Saldana's Out of the Furnace. A new planes trailer. Woohoo! And How to Train Your Dragon 2. Uh, well, let's start with the, uh, the Wolverine stuff. Um, in this new clip, uh, Wolverine interrupts a funeral. This is kind of an expanded sequence from what we've uh, seen in the trailers, uh, showing that business at the funeral where, uh, he apparently gets shot and the indication is that he's not healing quite the way he normally does. Hey, something's done right. So he's looking at somebody pulling out a gun. He seems to be in some sort of pain. So, um, <clears throat> uh, I don't remember. Was there any uh, X Men or Wolverine stuff uh, last week, Mike, that we talked about? Yeah, I think last week we had the uh, the train fight. Oh, that's right. That, yes, yes. That I think was unanimously not impressive across the board to, to all of us. Yeah, no, it it wasn't. And uh, in addition to uh, you know this uh, this clip. There's another one here, uh, the atomic bomb clip, where he shields a guy from an atomic bomb. Uh, there's a, a, a featurette on Viper, uh, who is apparently a, a thing in this in this film. Yeah, I don't know. I, I the early reviews that I the early buzz 
about this film has been that it's certainly better than the first Wolverine film, but not you know not not nearly as good as the first two installments in the X Men franchise. And that doesn't really surprise me. Does it? I mean, what do you think? Well, that's part of the thing. I feel like it's not very hard to really you know, get better than it was last time. Cause I think last time they really just almost jumped the shark. They had some really good material and then they didn't do anything that people really wanted to see in a Wolverine movie. Actually, I think wasn't it uh, earlier today that you showed the, the honest trailer about Wolverine over the movie bite. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. I, I think that was, a, that was probably a pretty great analysis of what uh, people saw in the original Wolverine movie and ultimately were let down by. And I have some comic book friends they're very excited about the story, the going to Japan, that kind of whole angle. And I think something else we hit on last week is sometimes the trailers aren't really going to dissuade us from going. And I believe the Wolverine's going to kind of do that for me. I like the 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 funeral scene that we got. Uh, yeah. Like better than the train scene. Oh, but yeah. The train scene has been the worst by far so far for me. Yeah. I, but like I said, no matter how bad the train scene is, I'm going to go see the Wolverine movie. Because I like watching movies about the X-Men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think maybe that's why I'm not getting trailers that really are showing me lots of conflict that's not just like him flashing his claws and jumping. I'm not really seeing any kind of inner turmoil, that Logan versus Wolverine kind of stuff. Well, I mean, they, uh, nothing some, that's really grabbing me. They, they've definitely put some conflict in there. Like they've got the whole sequence where he's dreaming about uh, – Jean Grey and uh, and stuff like that, and they've actually got um, what's her name in in a couple of scenes apparently in the flashbacks or in the dreams. Um, here's the honest trailer for X Men Origins Wolverine. Love these trailers, by the way. Usually, from the studio that nearly destroyed the X Men franchise with the Last Stand comes the film that destroyed your favorite X Men Wolverine. Journey to 1970s Canada, where everyone dresses like it's 2009. <laughs> so, yeah, that was pretty fun. I'll put that in the uh, show notes. Um, show notes for this episode will be at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 52. Well, I mean, you're going to see this movie, right, TJ? Oh, for sure, yeah. And and here's the thing. I actually didn't hate the first Wolverine film nearly as much as everyone else. I thought it was a little bit lackluster, but I didn't, I didn't feel like it was uh, – I didn't feel like it was like the 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 worst thing ever, you know. I don't know. But you like you like the first two X Men films, and you didn't really like the third, and you oh, weren't no, no. really sold to, on the prequel. Hold either. on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> okay. To say I didn't like the third is the biggest understatement in the history <laughs> of humankind. I hated that film with a fiery, burning passion of a thousand suns. <sighs> I, I want them. I actively I, – I, I, we should start a campaign. Can we do a Kickstarter or, or something? I want to get that film remade. I want to scratch it from the canon and remake it and make uh, and let Brian Singer do it and make it uh, – I mean, can, can we at least have a story this time and not just you know flashing some mutant powers around or something? Uh, I, I didn't realize what I was starting. <laughs> That's my fault. No, the third X-Men is by far the worst in the franchise without – any shadow of a doubt at all whatsoever. End of discussion. And and so if if that would have never been made, would you have maybe thought less of the first Wolverine movie? Or were you so happy that the first Wolverine movie wasn't as bad as the it's, third X-Men movie? It's that possible. Maybe you were like, it, uh, it's okay. it's very possible. I mean, I think they did some weird stuff in the film. Don't get me wrong. And and but it you know, it's it's hard to separate my feelings like 
okay, what would I have thought about this film if the third one hadn't been made? I don't know. I, I do know that Brett uh, Ratner should never be allowed to make a film ever again. <laughs> well, where, where are you expecting the Wolverine to land? Like, you know, with this, this new film. Where, I mean, I'm, ex- like- I'm expecting it to be better than the first Wolverine film. I'm not expecting it to be as good as the new X-Men Origins film coming out that, that Brian Singer is actually directing. Mm. I'm expecting it to be not quite as good as that. But, it's, you, you know, at the same time, I am a fan of Logan, and I'm, I'm always excited to see him get the claws out. And I, I, it, it's, you know, as much as I like good drama – and I'm not – like I don't mind action, but I'm not a fan of action for the sake of it. There's mm-hmm. something a little bit fun about, you know, Logan and and and, uh, and so that – you know, and Wolverine. So, you know, I'm looking forward to it. We'll see. So, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm going to be going to see it no matter how bad the previews look. So <laughs> Right. I, I'm, inve- I'm invested in the universe, and I think at this point, especially since, you know, comic book movies are so popular, there's tons of people. They know they're going to make their money back. Uh, I guess it's just, are they going to make enough money to continue the Wolverine franchise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on to uh, Saving Mr. Banks. Winds in the east. Mist coming in. Like something is brewing. About to begin. Ladies and gentlemen, we are beginning our descent into Los Angeles. Welcome, Mrs. P.L. Travers, to the City of Angels. It smells like jasmine, chlorine, and sweat. (laughs) So that's from the trailer for Saving Mr. Banks. And as you might have guessed from the uh, music that is very um, reminiscent of Mary Poppins, that this is a film about how Mary Poppins, uh, the Disney version of Mary Poppins, was made. Uh, of course, that that film starred uh, Dick Van Dyke and uh, Julie and uh, Julie Andrews, and it's well, it's it's a very beloved film. Wouldn't, oh, definitely. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? Do you like the film? I, I mean, like I haven't seen it since I was young, and I remember at the time I wasn't really into musicals, but it's a favorite of my wife, and I think that if I saw it again, I would really appreciate it a lot more than I did. Yeah, so. I, I think so. I, I have a little bit of. Um, of overload on that film, um, even though the last time I saw it was probably like when I was 11 or 12. But I saw it so many times as a kid that by the time I saw it the last few times, I was ready to never see it again. So that's still kind of stuck in my mind. That said, I think I would really enjoy it if I were to watch it now. It would bring back good memories of my childhood. And I don't think it's a terrible film from what I can remember, although, of course, as a 10, 10 or 11-year-old, I wasn't <laughs> evaluating films on that level. Exactly. But – uh this is a story about uh, how uh, uh, Walt Disney – and by the way, Tom Hanks is Walt Disney. I, it, it, he just looks the part, doesn't he? I mean it's, it's incredible. I would not have seen that before seeing him in this trailer. Oh, yeah, I do. I, I mean it, I love Tom Hanks anyway. There sure. are very few things that Tom Hanks has ever been in or portrayed that I haven't enjoyed on some level, even if I didn't like the story he was in. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, I'll take my money now. Yeah, shut up and take my money. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, I mean, on top of that, like, what it has uh, John Lee Hancock attached to it, who has written some uh, some movies that I've really enjoyed, uh, A Perfect World, The Blind Side. Uh, he he adapted the screenplay for Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, he's directed The Blind Side and The Rookie, so he's kind of got that. Uh, he can have that touch. I'm hoping to you know turn like this obviously hopefully heartwarming story uh, into reality so that I'm crying and weeping like a baby when, you know, by the film's end. 
Um, I just, I, 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 you know, and furthermore, I love this time of the summer, not because of the movies that are coming out, because of the previews, because I feel like this is when we get the previews for the movies that we're going to be talking about at Oscar time. Yeah, definitely. I think you're right yeah. about that. And I think that I think this movie is already setting up, you know, Paul Giamatti, best supporting actor, you know, Tom Hanks, you know, best actor. It just it just looks and has that feel. And it's hard for me to imagine that this movie will not hit on all the right notes. Yeah. So anytime, though, that I hear Mary, hear the word Mary Poppins, here's what I think of. I mean, that's that's immediately what comes to mind is Dick Van Dyke singing uh, Chim Chimney. So uh, definitely one of my childhood memories. So I'll be looking forward to this this film uh, telling the story about how that came to screen. Apparently, P.L. Travers was not too keen on it coming to the screen the way Walt Disney had it envisioned. Mm-hmm. It. So that should be fun. All right. Um, did, are you the one that I saw, uh, or did you interact with me? I'm, I'm, forgive me. I have so many things going on about the Out of the Furnace trailer. Um, I may have said something about it, but if I did, it was probably about basically the same thing I was saying about Saving Mr. Banks. Like Out of the Furnace just looks like uh, a whole cast of people throwing in their hats to the Oscar ring. Oh yeah, look at that. I'm looking at the comments now, and you are you you said between this and the Disney Mary Poppins film, it looks like we're starting to see our Oscar buzz films starting to hit. Looking forward oh, yeah. to it. So that was you. That was you. So so this is the trailer for um, the upcoming film Out of the Furnace, which uh, you know looks like it could be decent. I don't know. Russell, you work too much. I bring home the bacon to fatten you up. <laughs> So this film stars um, uh, it has quite a few stars in it: uh, Christian Bale, mm-hmm. Zoe Saldana, Woody Harrelson, uh, Willem Dafoe, Ridley Scott, and Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, so that's uh, that's quite the, quite the star power behind this film there, and it has a bit of an, almost an indie feel to it, at least in the trailer. Um, what it what it reminds me of is uh, when I watched uh, Christian Bale and The Fighter, uh, that kind of uh, gritty, uh, almost documentary type feel to it which is i mean incidentally enough what uh crazy heart kind of felt like as well um and it's the same director so uh i I mean i'm expecting good things with this cast this director and the people who are putting the money behind it to produce it i mean it it seems like it would be very i'd be very hard pressed to think this movie's gonna be bad yeah yeah i mean it definitely i think the only thing that kind of threw me for a loop uh when watching this trailer is that the the trailer started to get uh, kind of gritty and 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 intense, and yet the music stayed sort of happy. It was a r- little strange. Uh, I thought it sounded like a sound like a Pearl Jam song. Um, I'd have to go look it up for sure, but it kind of sounded like a droning. Uh, I don't know. It, it didn't it didn't put me off. It w- it wouldn't have been the music that I chose, but it did kind of have this like haunting, uh, grunge feel to it. And I don't want to stop throwing around the word grunge, but you know. I don't know how else to really describe it. It kind of it kind of fit the the dirtiness of how the film was looking. Very, you know, backwoods. Yeah. You know, do anything you can. Family first. I don't know. Like I said, almost documentary feel. So it didn't turn me off. It wasn't like I said. It wouldn't have been what I've chosen, but. I yeah. Okay. I can see your point. I, I I really didn't like it at that point, but you know <laughs> that's that's just me. Now, now let's get to the trailer that we both, I mean, we're just so looking forward to this film. It's going to be the best film ever. 
I just Welcome know it to is. the world's fastest sport. Where only the best compete. Not for flying out loud. So aren't you just looking forward to this film? Don't you think this is going to be the best film that Disney's ever made? I just can't wait to not see this movie. <laughs> this it, is from the, the the trailer for the new trailer for Planes. They keep releasing these trailers because I think I wonder if people just aren't that interested and they're trying to get more interest in it. Who knows? Well, I mean, well, the, one of the problems with it is, you know, I, I have no problem going and watching animated features. I love animated features. I love how they, especially nowadays, typically have something for like the adults, the teenagers, and like the kids. But this looks like the story is so done that they really don't really have any story to tell. So like, we hope you enjoy watching these random planes fly around. Sure. That, that that's exactly the feeling that I'm getting to like, where's the plot? Why, why aren't they, re- why aren't they at least cluing us in a little bit and making us interested in whatever the plot is in these trailers? I mean, you can't give the plot away in the trailer too much. At least you shouldn't in a good yeah. film, but, but, but at the same time, it's like, come on, show us, give us a little something. I, I want to be excited for the film. So make me excited for it. And all but, you're right. All I'm seeing is these planes flying around, making jokes, and and you know, all oh, for flying out loud. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't get it. Well, it it looks to me, and this is a completely cynical view. So you know, if anyone out there in listener land disagrees, I don't I don't fault you for that. But it really seems like this is one of the reasons that Disney wanted to acquire Pixar because I have a whole bunch of people being like, I can't believe Pixar would put out a movie like that. I'm like, they're not. Yeah, they're not. You know, Disney is obviously cashing in on, you know, the Pixar lookalike movie. Yeah. Well, that said though, one of the producers is John Lasseter and, and he has to, in my mind, been the driving force behind the good storytelling at Pixar. So I don't know if his name is just on there or whether he actually is doing something there. And who knows, because because I was really surprised. Well, I can't say I was surprised. I was hoping it would be good, and I I was um, pleasantly rewarded, let's say, with Wreck-It Ralph. Great mm-hmm. film. Yeah. And that was a Disney animation film, and John Lasseter was one of the big brains behind that. So I have to hope, you know, maybe I need to have a little faith in John Lasseter. Because uh, I did like, you know, and I did like Cars. I didn't like Cars 2 all that well. You know, yeah. it was one of the more lackluster but, you know, may, maybe Planes, maybe there's something there. I don't know. I, I'm not well, seeing it, though. Yeah, Planes is going to be – it's going to end up being one of those movies that I will uh, decide not to go see. But if enough people who do see it, like, just sing its praises, if, you know, I'm, I'm at Rotten Tomatoes and it's getting, like, scores of, like, 85 or 90 percent, you know, and it really surprises me. I, I might consider changing my tune. I might go catch it in like the dollar fifty theater or something like that. Yeah, it's just hard. It's hard for me to imagine that this is something that can be good enough. Where if I miss it opening weekend, I'm going to kick myself. Yeah, I, I imagine that I will be seeing it and reviewing it on the podcast. So you can just listen, tune in right here, and, and listen, and, and we'll uh, we'll determine whether it's any good or not. I'm, I'm sure that we will. So uh, last one is how to train your dragon two, and you know, much to the uh, chagrin of many people mm-hmm. uh, who saw me post this and saw me say that I had not seen the first one. I have not seen the first one. So tell me why I should see the first one. Well, it's hard for me to say because you didn't really like Despicable Me that much, but I feel like I love this movie more than I like the first Despicable Me movie. And I, I, last week we, you know, we spent a great deal of time talking about how much I enjoyed that. I had no expectations going into the first one and it blew me away. It took me like on a ride. I cared about all the characters. I had um, 
you know, dragons become their own characters without having to say words. Um, just, you know, through their actions, the storytelling was amazing. And I thought it was clever. It was fun, you know, funny. It had things for the adults. It had things for the kids. Everything I could want in an animated movie. Um, so the the problem I have with How to Train Your Dragon Two, if I can have a problem with it yet, is I have no idea what they're going to do next. So it wasn't really left open ended. Like, oh, we can't wait to see what happens now. It's just kind of like everything was kind of wrapped up in a bow at the end of the first one. Yeah. So, so it's like, where are they going with it? What's going on? Sort yeah. of thing. I mean, the trailer for How to Train Your Dragon 2, uh, I mean, it was it was beautiful. Uh, I mean, that, it was a lot more of the flying through the air kind of really cool animation sequences. But, you know, as you probably saw, it didn't tell us anything about what's going on in the movie. Yeah, no, it, it, essentially, I wasn't even going to play a clip from it because it's just a, a guy, you know, the kid uh, flying around on the dragon, you know, mm-hmm. and that's all it is. It's, it's basically just the teaser, you know. So, uh yeah, I um, I have no idea from that. It, it didn't make me want to see it, but I'm sure people who have seen the first one, I'm, it's they seem to be very excited about it. Yeah, I, saw, I, would, I mean, like I know you have a very long list of movies that you want to catch up on, but this to me should be probably at the top of your list. I mean, especially since you have kids that you can like watch movies with to kind of you know you know back to back some tasks there, hanging with a child that you care so much about seeing the movie that you really need to see. So people on the internet won't think less of you. This, this is knocking out. <laughs> not, not you per se, but people on the internet. Yes, I, I let yes. other people take care of that. Okay. I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, talk bad about TJ for not seeing this movie. Well, you know, give it a couple of years. Now that I'm running a movie website, I'm watching, you know, <laughs> five or six times more movies than I did before. And so at some point, you know, I'll get caught up. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm still not all that excited I, I, about it. I don't know. I, I, I guess I'll put it on the list. But um, and y- you know, you're you and um, Michael uh, Minkoff, uh, who when he's uh, when he actually is doing the show, does one of our other shows here on Movie Bite uh, Movieology. Uh, he told me as well that I really need to watch this film. So I guess I'll I guess I'll put it in the queue. Uh, you know, <laughs> love, sacrifice, friendship. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's awesome. Okay. I will put it in the queue. All right, let's move on to uh, movie news and items of interest. Um, and uh, the first thing we have here, this is really just a heads up. Uh, Star Trek Into Darkness is coming to uh, home video uh, sooner than I would have expected. And it's coming to digital download first. Uh, the uh, you, can, you can download it. You'll be able to download it on August the 20th. And if you, you're waiting for the physical copy... Uh, that'll be a few weeks later on September the 10th. I will be getting this on iTunes immediately because I love the film a lot. I, I saw that um, you like you like Into Darkness more than you like the first the 2009 Star Trek. Oh, way way more. This <sighs> this movie felt like a Star Trek movie. Star Trek 2009 did not. Yeah, it's very weird. I, I didn't enjoy a whole lot Into Darkness when I first saw it, and then I watched it again. To, to do my review over at the real world theology podcast. And I liked it a lot more, but the further and further I get away from the film, the less and less positive things I remember about it. Hmm. But that doesn't change the fact that I'm a big star Trek nerd and I'm going to own this movie at some point. Yeah. I'm just, well, I'm I mean, just going to decide where, where to, uh, 
or when to acquire it for my library. Right. Well, I mean, I own uh, all the st- all the Star Trek that is possible to own anyway. So, well, not not all. I mean, like, I'm I don't have like the original theatrical release of a couple of movies here and there. But I mean, like, uh, you know, even even Star Trek the Motion Picture, which is probably the worst film ever, one of the worst films ever made. I have so just because you know I have to have the complete collection, right? But no, I'm I'm just the opposite of you. The further away we get from Star Trek and the Darkness, the less bad things I remember about it, and the more good things. I mean, I know, and I, I did the review, so I know, and I wrote it down. I know <laughs> the story has some flaws, but yeah. but at the same time, I, I, I just, I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed the film. I, I can't help it, you know? Well, one of the, I mean, to slightly change the subject, one of the things that I thought really struck me when you uh, linked this in the show notes was I am assuming that you're moving to all digital now, right? Trying to. I, I am. Even though I'm a big uh, believer in film and shooting on film, as far as mm-hmm. my library, it's so much easier to manage in, in digitally. Uh, and, and things have been digital for a while anyway, like DVDs are digital, Blu-rays are digital. And yes, you, you know, Blu-rays are pretty high fidelity. But so you know, iTunes is is very watchable, at least in my setup. I mm-hmm. you know I can tell the difference if I do a back to back Blu-ray with versus an iTunes download, and, and certainly a Hulu or a Netflix or something like that. But you know what? The digital, the ease of my digital life is is more important to me. So yes, mm-hmm. to answer your question in a long <laughs> and roundabout and long winded way, which is hey, that's why I have a podcast, right? Uh, yes, uh, I am I am moving towards an all digital system. Well, and and that's funny to me because it. From what it seems, especially releasing the the digital copy much earlier, well, much earlier, uh, I think I would consider it a significant amount of time for people who want to own the movie um, earlier on digital kind of shows a trend that they're really pushing people to digital, you know, probably less cost on the manufacturing end, stuff like that. Yes, although I have a theory about that. I, I believe okay. that's true. They have, the, you know, it's less overhead manufacturing costs. Obviously, a direct – I mean, I think, uh, you know, if you're doing it through iTunes, Apple takes like a 30% cut. Uh, I don't know what other arrangements they've made with other delivery systems such as Amazon and, and uh, uh, what's, the, what's the other one? Uh, is it Vudu or, or something like that? Oh yeah, all the things that download on my PS3 yeah. that I don't use. Right, so so I don't know what arrangements they've made there, but but the fact is there's less overhead, there's less cost involved in producing the thing. But I do have a theory, and that theory is this: by making it available uh, for download first, everybody who's a big Star Trek nerd is going to rush and download it because it's available right now and they can watch it again. But you've got to also understand, I'm pretty sure. A lot of those same nerds also want the high-fidelity copy on Blu-ray, so they're going to force them to buy it twice. No, I, I say force. I was doing air quotes. So you couldn't see me. Uh, they're going to force <laughs> I could. Them. I could feel them. So, yes, the, the force. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, wrong franchise. <laughs> um so yeah, I, I think that maybe maybe there's uh, I could be just conspiracy theory, but I kind of think that's what they're aiming for is is you know what we'll get all these people who want to watch it right away and make them you know by waiting to uh, to release the physical copy they'll get both and we'll make more money. So that's that's kind of what I'm thinking. But well, it's interesting because and I know this is another link that was I think on the movie by a couple like a day or two ago, but it was talking about like the multiple endings to Pacific Rim. Mm-hmm. And in that uh, interview with Guillermo del Toro, he talked about how they wanted to show some extra stuff or they're thinking about showing some extra stuff or filming in 3D and doing all this other stuff. But he actually pointed out there was a decline in the CD or the, the DVD and Blu-ray industry 
or the actual manufacturing of it. So that they, whereas in the past you could get Guillermo del Toro movies and the special features would be bountiful. He says it's not very worthwhile to even do that anymore. And when you, when that, when that was linked and then we saw this kind of push to get the digital out first, I was like, I, it feels like I'm seeing a different trend going on here. Yeah, well, regardless, the, the, the trend is definitely towards digital just because that's the way consumers are, are moving. That's the way I'm moving. And, um, you know, I'm a little bit of a geek. I have a lot of movies that I've ripped and put in my iTunes library, which is served on my network, and I can watch them on my Apple TV, la, 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 you know. Glorious. Yes. So, but no, <laughs> most people, even so, I think the trend is toward uh, digital. And even more than just digital, I think it's it's probably heading towards uh online availability not 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 like the itunes model where you download it and own it but maybe you even just watch it on netflix or i think it's where we're headed now i think the vast majority of people are not you know like that feels like a fringe thing to them it's a little bit techy and nerdy and out there still Mm -hmm. so i don't know but but i do think that um You've got some crossover with nerds and with people who go and buy lots of movies and that's probably why we're seeing a decline so yeah I can, I can get on board with that. Yep. All right. Uh, this is another one that you, you commented on, which is why it's in the show outline. You, uh, <laughs> Bruckheimer's future at Disney. And uh, so Kim Masters over at The Hollywood Reporter said that amid continuing reverberations from the mega failure of The Lone Ranger, it appears clear that the movie was damaged – uh, has per damage producer Jerry Bruckheimer's long and often highly successful relationship with Disney and will lead at minimum to a renegotiation of his rich deal for a fifth Pirates of the Caribbean, if not uh, if not his eventual exit from the studio. <clears throat> and so I said, oh, come on, guys. All filmmakers and producers make bad films once in a while, which I don't even think The Lone Ranger is. Yet at some time – yet at the same time, I'm uh, kind of torn. And I have just realized I made a spelling error on the site, and that really irritates me. Uh, I'm kind of torn because we don't need a Pirates 5 anyway. Disney should just cancel that project. Eh, whatever. And you took issue with my, oh, come on, guys. Uh, tell, <laughs> tell me about this. Well, this is the thing. Like, I think if one film would have been bad, then that's definitely not, you know, because I think your argument was, oh, okay, come on, guys. He made one bad movie. I mean, Lone Ranger's probably going to lose tons and millions and millions of dollars. Don't you know? Don't hang the guy just for this one thing. That was yeah. But, that was my point. Yeah, but even in the in the link itself, it talks about the many other movies that um, Bruckheimer has kind of greenlighted, and they have been colossal flops. So it's not like this is just a a one time thing. If it was a one time thing, I would completely be on your side. Well, well, name me a couple of these films. Well, G Force. What was the the Sorcerer's Apprentice? Uh, basically any movie that he puts Nick Cage in, I don't ever want to see, <laughs> but that, I guess that's a personal opinion. Um, I mean, so, so like he, he's done, he, like, I know he's done lots of TV shows now, but I feel like he's found his way to make lots of money and that's being a producer. Um, and I don't think he's very selective anymore. If I look at like the history of Jerry Bruckheimer, I see him being a producer on some really cool films, like bringing the bad boys franchise, mm-hmm. um, so, so like, cause it's what I, for a, a buddy cop film, I thought that was a cool, fun spin on it. But like, there's so many things in between and I am almost tempted to go pull up his filmography like I did earlier today, just to make that point. 
Well, you but, go ahead and do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean Bruckheimer, um, I, I, I guess I can see that, that maybe the trend was where he was more selective earlier in his career. He wanted to do good films and, and greenlight good films and produce good films and make good films. And, and then as his career has gotten more successful, he's and, and he's cared less and less, and he's just producing films now. And who, who cares if his name is attached to a bad film as long as it makes him money? Maybe, maybe that is the case. I don't know. Uh, and, and I can see your point. I, I guess I'm I'm coming at it from not – I really haven't paid much attention to uh, films that Jerry Bruckheimer has produced necessarily except for, except for Pirates of the Caribbean. He produced Pearl Harbor? Uh-huh. Kangaroo Jack, Coyote Ugly, Gone in 60 Seconds, another yeah, another unneeded Nicolas Cage film. <laughs> I mean – but at the, see, but that's the thing. At the same time, he's also brought us – I think you know he's brought us Crimson Tide, Bad Boys, Days of Thunder – Beverly Hills Cop 2, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, you know, th- these are, you know, some of his older films. He brought one of my favorite war films, uh, Black Hawk Down. Okay. So he followed up one of the worst war films that I've ever seen in my life, Pearl Harbor, and then went on to produce Black Hawk Down. So it just seems like he's too hit or miss for me. If he had a track record of success over and over and over and he had one bad thing, I'd be like, okay, you know, forgive the man, move on. You know, someone gave him some bad advice or maybe he saw something that didn't come out in the final film. But I feel like, you know, every year he's he's producing like like three or four TV shows and two or three films. And it just seems like he's just he's got tons of money. He's throwing money at things and he's hoping more often than not that money will stick. Prince yeah, but Persia, come, uh, come on. He, he gave us the Pirates franchise. Can't you give him a pass? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. I love the first fi- first Pirates movie and I have some joy for the ones that have come after to some degree or another. Um, but I mean, I, if I wanted to give him some, like I said, I would have given her black Hawk down. I would have, I would have almost just to have that movie. Um, I would be cool with him producing movies. Remember the Titans. He did remember the Titans, another great movie. But like I said, it's, it seems like one, one good one, one bad one, or maybe two good ones, one bad one. So is, I mean, it's not baseball. He can't be batting 300 and, you know, still being successful. I, I feel like he needs a little more, he needs to just be a little more selective. Yeah, so, maybe I'm not, so I'm not, I'm not for, I'm not for him being kicked out of, you know, Hollywood or, or anything like that. I just, just maybe think about it. Just take a little time. Yeah. Take a break, come back and do something <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I can see that, but you just, know, that's probably not going to happen. He's, he's going to make no, films. <laughs> no, he's got more money than we'll ever even imagine exists and he'll keep throwing money at things yep. as long as the majority of them, have a return. So. Speaking of throwing money at things, uh, <laughs> 3D has hit an all-time low with Despicable Me 2, according to Grady Smith over at Entertainment Weekly. Uh, blockbuster sequel Despicable Me 2 earned $143 million over the extended 4th of July weekend, and although its debut marked a high point at the summer box office, office it also marked a low point for 3D ticket sales. According to Universal, only 27% of Despicable Me's opening weekend gross came from 3D tickets the lowest 3D share in modern box office history. Notably, the record low comes just two weeks after Monsters University notched a 31% 3D share on its opening weekend, which at the time was the worst 3D performance ever. Poor 3D... Poor 3D... Can't talk. (laughs) Poor 3D ticket sales. That's a mouthful for some reason. Uh, Let me try again. Poor 3D ticket sales aren't just plaguing recent animated films either. Brad Pitt's live-action zombie thriller World War Z only earned 34% of its debut from the 3D tickets, and The Great Gatsby fared even worse, despite the fact that Baz Luhrmann's use of 3D was a primary selling point for Gatsby. 
3D tickets sales, 3D ticket sales only accounted for 33% of its opening weekend. Now, for my part, Michael, I don't. I, this will be interesting. I don't know where you stand on this. For my part, I couldn't be happier with this news. I want 3D to go away in the worst possible way. I don't want to ever see another 3D movie ever again in my entire life. How do you feel about 3D? Uh, I'm I'm pretty done with 3D. I mean, I, I I don't know if I have the vitriol that I believe you seem to have for it, but I mean, I, I saw. I, I don't have strong opinions on anything, <laughs> and that's what I like about you, TJ. I can never tell where you stand. Yeah, I know it's so hard. Um, I, I like. Uh, I saw I saw Avatar in 3D, and when I, I remember seeing it and saying, "Wow, this is kind of cool," but I'll be okay if I never see another movie in 3D again. Um, so. I don't want to. I don't want to necessarily say I will never see another movie in 3D, but I think that they're going to have to like implant some kind of chip in my brain or something, so I don't have to like wear glasses or do something special. Um, now, now, do you wear corrective lenses or contacts? I do not. Okay, and you don't. So that blows Joe's theory. Joe, if you're listening, uh, which he does occasionally, still listen to the podcast. Uh, his his theory was that uh, I didn't that, that I think it was Joe. It was that he, I didn't like it, and anybody else who wears glasses doesn't like it. You know, it may have been Chad. Now that I think about it, this may have been an on, like a, a a Facebook conversation or something. Anyway, whoever it was, the theory was that if you wear glasses, which I do, or even even contacts, uh, corrective lenses of some sort, that you will three D seems to be worse for those people. No, well, and see, here's the thing. Um, even though I do not. Um and you know the, the gear the the gear doesn't bother me it doesn't really bother my eyes in any way um almost every movie i ever go see i go see with my wife and she has glasses and it is very uncomfortable for her to try to uh enjoy a 3d movie because of that uh, because you know like those those hindrances you're talking about and when she's not happy i'm typically not happy so <laughs> sure. it's just another reason i mean like i said i wasn't so impressed with it that i felt like it was worth the extra money and the extra effort and so you add that on top of it and i'm like i will just pass i'm enjoying movies you know just fine in 2d um so if it goes away more theaters to keep a couple movies that i want to see in the theater longer yeah, and and you know, just I want to touch on this real briefly, and then we'll move on because we are taking a long time on the news. But um, it's my yeah, fault. no, no, it's it's totally <laughs> fine. I enjoy it, but some people complain once in a while, and then, you know what? I don't care. <laughs> they, they can complain. Um, y- y- you know, uh, the the thing, like I know, like I know when I'm going into a 3D movie that I'm going to have to deal with the glasses. It's just the way it is, and I don't think that's what what makes 3D bad for me. I mean, now what what. What makes 3D bad for me is two things. One, it gives me a terrible headache every time I see a 3D movie. So maybe mm-hmm. it does have to do with the glasses. I don't know. Maybe somehow it interacts with the glasses in a strange way. Maybe that's what it is, but I don't think so. I don't think that's it at all. But two, it's just such a gimmick, and I've never seen a 3D film where I felt like it enhanced the storytelling in a way that was worthwhile. So, yeah, I'm, I'm over 3D, and I'm, I couldn't be happier with this news that, that ticket sales are – that people are, are realizing it's a gimmick and that they don't care. So moving on um, – I wanted to just mention briefly that J.J. Abrams would still like to direct the next Star Trek film in addition to his uh, dude, his uh, taking on of Star Wars because he's a little bit crazy apparently. Uh, Zachary Quinto uh, in an interview, um, he said, uh, Star Trek 3 should be filming, I suppose, next year. It's going to be made a lot quicker than the first one. That's the plan, although nothing is confirmed yet. 
At one point in the interview, Quinto mentioned that J.J. Abrams was planning to direct Star Trek Three, which is – I hate when people call it that, but that, I'm reading a thing here. I'm with you on that. Um, which is another surprising fact, but once again, he did not elaborate. I don't know how this guy thinks he's going to make both the next Star Trek film, which will be a massive undertaking, and the Star Wars film, which may even be an uh, uh, even more massive undertaking. I don't know how he thinks he's going to do that. Well, actually, I – You'll be happy to know, TJ, that I read like your little in-between comments on most of this, uh-huh. and I think I agreed with almost everything that you said. Really? Because well, you know, new new director, smaller budget, you know, make it character driven. You know, just take it take away the the ability to have like you know too much flash. Just get it, get back to Star Trek. Yeah, make it more you know Rathacon esque. Yeah, you know, I don't think you're ever going to hit that, but you know, just it, it, this is coming from the guy who I loved Generations. Oh, I was like, you and I cannot be friends. See, I was like, this is all character driven. This is, I mean, this is great, great dialogue, great there, script, I, but I there's admit, not a lot of action. There were parts of Generations that I enjoyed. Um, I, I felt like, the, oh, this is such a side conversation. I felt like no, Data no, was a little. Have it. I'm just trying to, you know, I'm trying to agree with you, but now you're trying to disagree with me, no, TJ. No, no. You're not helping your case. I know, I know. Uh, but data was so messed up in Generations, I didn't enjoy that. But okay, we can review Generations sometime. And remind me, and, and I'll have you on, and we'll review it sometime in a lull during a lull in, in, in the season somewhere. Um, okay, uh, negotiations for Arrested Development season five are underway because apparently season four was a smashing success. I've been watching the first season because I realized once Netflix acquired uh, the the rights or whatever and is airing exclusively season four that I needed to start getting caught up. I did not get caught up in time. Obviously, I'm still on season one. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a little bit hit or miss for me. Like, if I'm in the right mood, it's okay. But apparently a lot of people love this thing. Now, now I know we're ju- our relationship is just budding, TJ, and I'm just learning about the things that you like and dislike. And I can understand how you would not think Arrested Development's one of the best comedies that's ever been on TV. But <laughs> for for me and my house, we are an Arrested Development house. You and your house will serve a less Arrested Development. Is that what that's you're trying right. to say? It yeah. is. It is. We were so happy when season four came back, um, and it started. It was done completely different. I still saw the 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 brilliance of the writing. It's some of the most clever writing I've ever seen, and having another season i am completely in favor make it so engage go wrong franchise what it doesn't matter make it happen okay um one more uh i'm I'm truncating the show outline here just a little because we need to move on but one more that i really want to talk about and that is the pixar theory did you read through this i read this whole article did you read any of it I, I made it through about half, and then I skimmed the rest, and I said, someone's got a lot of time. Oh, for sure. A lot sure. more time than I have. For sure. It, but it's amazing. I yeah, I was impressed. It, it is pretty amazing. There were some things that he stretched on, but there are other things like, wow, this this actually really works. Like, mm-hmm. you, I don't I don't for a second really think that anybody over at Pixar was thinking this way and telling these stories. I don't for a second believe that. But, okay, I, in order for this conversation to make sense, we have to tell people who don't know. And you will find the link to this in the show notes, but it is a very long read. But basically, he's saying that the, all the Pixar films happen in a single universe, that they're all interrelated and interconnected. And um, it's a very interesting theory. Uh, and he, he goes through the time frames and the timelines. Now, he's not saying that it's, it's uh, sequential by any means, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. They happen like this one happens at this point in the timeline. This one happens at this point in the timeline. And, and basically, we're moving towards a dystopian future with all these uh, machines taking over, which, you know, uh, Wally 
Um, and, and it's very interesting. Like I can't even capture all the nuances that he, he did here. It was quite an amazing mm-hmm. read. Uh, you know, I, I love to read things like this. I just haven't had the time a lot lately to really sit down and read. Like I'll, I have so many things in my Insta paper that I've wanted to sit down and read, but this one was so worth it. So worth it. Um, I, I just sat down and read this in one sitting and it was a lot of fun. So I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. Do you have anything you want to add on that topic? Oh, no. It's like I said, it's very interesting. And one of the things I love about uh, the Pixar films is the writers are obviously doing way more than they just present like to the audience uh, at a glance. But I don't think even they could have, you know, tried to make all this happen. So a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's it's pretty impressive that someone took the time to kind of uh, kind of connect all those dots. Yeah, definitely. And uh you know, like I said, this guy had way too much time on his hands, but you know, it was it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, all right. Well, why don't we uh, start? Go ahead and, and uh, start our review of Pacific Rim. What do you say? We always thought alien life would come from the stars. But it came from deep beneath the Pacific Ocean. The first kaiju made land in San Francisco. The second attack hit Manila. Then the third one hit Cabo. So you get the idea. That's the trailer from uh, Pacific Rim. Uh, by the way, the voice that you're hearing is the main actor, Charlie Hunnam. And I thought his he, his voice for this pur- purpose, for the voice just for the voiceover purpose, is absolutely amazing and perfect for the film and, and for the trailer. So um, before we before we dive into the actual review, there are just a couple of things here I wanted to mention, and you'll find these in the show notes. Um, uh, the, and the, you, you alluded to this earlier, uh, Mike, uh, where uh, the, uh, Guillermo – let me see if I can say his name right. Guillermo <laughs> del Toro uh, said that there will be no director's cut. The director's cut is the one you're seeing in the theater. But there were three endings shot, uh, but he chose the ending that he wanted, and that was the director's cut. Uh, so uh, he, I, I guess the idea, though, is that those three endings will be in some of the special features, but uh, that, that there will be no actual director's cut. And, you know, I'm mostly on board with, with that line of thinking. I know uh, what's kind of shaped and influenced my thinking on this is uh, Nick Meyer, who directed uh, The Wrath of Khan. Um, he, he said when he did the director's cut of, um, of The Wrath of Khan, which, by the way, is not that much different from the theatrical cut. And the reason why is he said he doesn't really believe in director's cuts. He thinks that for the most part, unless the studio is being stupid – uh, the cut that wound up in theaters is the cut – it was cut that way for a reason, and that's the cut that should be the canon cut, right? And Fair so I, I think that that's true. If it's a good film, you don't need a director's cut. Now, I do have and enjoy uh, the director's cut of Star Trek The Motion Picture, for instance. Uh, notice everything is related to Star Trek somehow mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because uh, that film was not good as a theatrical cut, and though it's still not good as a director's cut, it is far better. Um, so – uh, that's the news there from Guillermo del Toro on Pacific Rim. There is an infographic I would like for you to check out. You will also find in the show notes. This is pretty amazing. Um, it uh, Let me pull up the large version here so I can get this right. It uh, has the Wicked Witch of the West, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, King Kong, a Rancor from Star Wars, uh, Megatron, the 50-foot woman, um, and then others, Clover. Uh, I'm not even sure what that's from. And... Uh, and then it has Gypsy Danger, which is twice as big as the second biggest thing on here. Uh, so uh, um, this, these things are huge. They're absolutely huge. The uh, – the uh, what are they the called? The Yeagers. Yes, the Yeagers. Thank you. You're welcome. 
So, um, did you did you get a look at this infographic? Oh, I did. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just it just made me love the film that much more. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and then the, the last thing, uh, David Chen, who uh, is also the host of the Slash Filmcast, which I listened to, uh, he wrote a piece on uh, SlashFilm.com about five ways Pacific Rim succeeds where other summer blockbusters have failed. And I didn't agree with everything he said, but it was a good read. So check those things out related to this movie that we're about to talk about. All right, so Pacific Rim opened in theaters on July the 12th, 2013. It had a budget, an inflated budget, I might add, of $190 million. And are you ready for this, Mike? Even though both of us like this film, the opening weekend was pretty dismal. It only opened to $37.3 million. And worldwide, so far, as of right now, it has only grossed $98.7 million. That's on a budget of $190 I, I feel like it's going to go on and do better than this, and it's going to make its budget back and then some, but that's a bit of a slow start. Oh, it definitely is, but I think this is like uh, uh, many films that go on to be like the definitions of their genres. Like They'll have so many like DVD and Blu-ray and digital download sales. It's it, it, They'll make their money back. Yeah, and I feel like perhaps um, because there's been so much uh, stuff coming going on at the box office, you know, we're into the summer season that perhaps friends will tell their friends, hey, you know what, that was a pretty good film. You need to go see it. I'll go see it with you, and maybe they'll see it again, and, and mm-hmm. maybe, you know, maybe we'll see some of that. So maybe maybe the next this, – this weekend that we're coming up on will be better for the film. But it's certainly – I think a lot of – I think that the low um, opening kind of uh, – people were expecting it to open better. Critics certainly were. I know uh, – the film hadn't opened when Slash Film, uh, the Slash Filmcast did their review of Pacific Rim, and they were talking about how it was going to do gangbusters, you know, the first weekend, and not so much. So anyway, uh, the critical acclaim from Rotten Tomatoes says it may sport more style than substance, but Pacific Rim is a solid modern creature feature bolstered by fantastical imagery and an irresistible sense of fun. Of course, the director was Guillermo del Toro. Writers Travis Beecham and uh, Guillermo del Toro. It stars Charlie Hunnam. Uh, Idris Elba, uh, Rinko Kiku. Oh, I meant to practice these before the before the show. <laughs> Kikuchi, a very, a very pretty Japanese name. Yes, um, Charlie Day, uh, Burn Gorman, and Ron Perlman. So, uh, do you have the uh, outline in front of you, Mister Fizzle? Uh, you mean the outline that you sent? I do not. Okay. Well, I'll go that ahead and read. Own. I'll go ahead and read the story then. Uh, the storyline: When legions of monstrous creatures known as Keiju started rising from the sea, a war began that would take millions of lives and consume humanity's resources for years on end. To combat uh, to combat the giant Keiju, a special type of weapon was devised: massive robots called Jaegers, which are controlled simultaneously by two pilots whose minds are locked in a neural bridge. But even the Jaegers are proving nearly defenseless in the face of the relentless Keiju. Uh, on the verge of defeat, the forces defending mankind have no choice but to turn to two unlikely heroes, a washed-up former pilot, played by Charlie Hunnam, uh, and an untested trainee, played by Rinko Kikuchi, which we've already established that I probably am not pronouncing right, who are teamed to drive a legendary but seemingly obsolete Jaeger from the past. Together, they stand as mankind's last hope against the mounting apocalypse. Yay. So, um, <laughs> let's let's start with our general thoughts and impressions about this film. And I've been doing a lot of talking, so why don't you tell us about that? Oh, man, my, my general thoughts, uh, the only thing that comes to mind is it's the best action movie I have seen this year. And I've seen so many action movies. I feel like, like the we've kind of been building ever since, like maybe Oblivion, maybe a little bit before then, um, to like these 
larger than life, like worldwide action extravaganzas and they're fast paced. They're, they're blurry. It's hard to follow, but this was just in your face. I was on the edge of my seat, like watching these Jaegers and monsters fight. And I think Guillermo del Toro did exactly what I'd hoped he had done or what it would do. I think I'd said last week on the podcast that if it was done right, it will be like many of his other films where he takes a concept that is either incredibly simple or is kind of silly when you say it out loud. And he handles the material in such a way like he did with Hellboy or Blade 2 that you don't really think it's silly when you're watching it. Um, so when you leave, you're like, wow, I just watched a movie about big monsters fighting big giant robots and you don't feel silly for having done it. And I think that was completely successful. I had, I had very high expectations going into this film and they were exceeded, which is very rare. Okay. Well, let, let me just say that I, I, I think that, um, my opinion is a little lower than yours, but slightly. not a lot, just slightly, um, <laughs> Uh, and, and, you know, yes, it, you're right. It is a big summer blockbuster and it's a lot of fun, but, but, you know, it's also a little bit ridiculous and it didn't quite get there for me in terms of making me feel okay about watching a big monsters rock'em sock'em kind of a thing, you know, but it did okay. And, uh, obviously as we'll get to, I mean, I'm, my, my review is already out there Four out of five stars is what I gave it. So obviously I liked it well enough, but I did think that the, the concept in general was just a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> like, Seriously, we um, what is the what is the deal here? Why why do we have to have big, huge robot things in order to attract the audience? I don't understand why we can't just have good drama, <laughs> you know, good human drama. Well, if giant monsters attack the planet, what are what would you suggest you fight them with, TJ? Um, sticks and stones. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and see, that's the thing. It, the the that's that's one of the biggest selling points for me. Like, how do you make a movie that, like I said, is a, an incredibly silly concept, not seem silly? And that is, you know, uh, you know, I know we're not getting to like the things we really liked and the things, whatever, quite yet. But you see in the movie that it's developed that it's like, oh, you know, it was taking like six days or weeks to take them down with conventional weapons. You know, so something else had to be done. Something like out of the box. Something crazy. You know, something so silly it had to work. And we get this concept and you're like, oh, OK, that makes sense. I mean, not on you know, not on the, the purest logical level, but on the for story's sake. You fight monsters with monsters. Yeah, I, I guess I just wouldn't have chosen to make that film. You know, if it were if I were the filmmaker, I wouldn't want to make something that ridiculous. But but, um, you know. You're right. Guillermo del Toro did as good a job as anybody could have done with it, I think. And and he didn't make it strictly about monsters. Uh, so – and this is already starting to get into stuff that I liked about the film – is that this film does have a good bit of human interaction and drama. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just about, oh, here's a, here's a fight scene and, and oh, here's another way we're going to set up a fight scene and, oh, it's all leading to this fight scene and, oh, here's the big one. Oh, this, this, look at them level this city. It, you know, that was in there, but it, it wasn't like the film was structured and built around that. Um, it, it, it was actually built around a good story, I thought, uh, a, a pretty decent story, let's say. And you're right. It, um, uh, it is not my favorite film this year so far, but it is the best action film this year so far, and yes – um, even though, well, I don't know. It's hard to, for me to say that it's better than Star Trek Into Darkness, but it's it's at least on that same level for me this year in terms of summer action films. So, um, 
Let's go ahead and talk about a few things that we we do like about this film. And I'm going to start right off and say um, what I feared was that this was uh, Guillermo del Toro's Transformers, and it is not anything like Transformers. Uh, so thank goodness for that. I liked it for that. <laughs> I completely agree. Uh, we, I actually had friends who I had to convince to go see it um, that were not going to go see it because they thought it would just be Guillermo del Toro doing Transformers. And all of them, all, every single one of them came out of the theater saying, thank God that wasn't Transformers. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was definitely a concern of mine because it looked to me and, – and this was this – was, um, I think this the opinion of mine was kind of uh, put in place by the terrible marketing at the beginning of the marketing run for this film uh, where it just looked like uh, Guillermo del Toro was careening headlong into the same path as Michael Bay has done with the Transformers. Uh, just ridiculous, stupid, uh, no plot, uh, all action, big, you know, robots, you know, crashing things around and leveling cities and making stupid jokes. And, you know, that's where I thought this film was headed. And and I think that that, that was the case. I had that opinion because the marketing and the trailers, the first couple of trailers were so bad. They they were so bad. Uh, it reminds me of uh, one, one of my podcast friends who went to see it with me. Um he said that he felt like every time he watched a Jaeger punch a monster in the head, it was like Guillermo del Toro punching Michael Bay in the head and say, that is how you make action movies. Show opener. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I just dropped a marker in Logic Pro. Uh, that will that will put that at the front of the show. Um, yeah, I uh, that, that's good. I like that. You've completely, completely rolled my train of thought off the tracks, but that's okay. <laughs> Just tell me what you liked about the film, TJ. Stay um, on target. Yeah, stay, stay on, on target. target. <clears throat> Sorry, I just impacted on the surface. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, I, I like that, yes, there was some action at the beginning of the film, but it wasn't like, um, you know, as much as I li- – l- l- let me illustrate it this way. As much as I liked um, – the only thing nearly that I liked about Superman was the look that we had at Krypton um, and the world building that was going on there. At the same time, I didn't like that the very first thing this that Superman, uh, Man of Steel, did was throw us into that action. Like, there's no time to tell you a story. We've got to have action right now. Action, action, action. Yeah. You know? Action beat, action beat, action beat. Exactly. And this film didn't feel that way at all, even though there was some action to start with. It felt more like a story-driven element, and this is kind of an extension of what I was saying earlier. It it starts with that voiceover and setting you up and setting up the plot, and 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 um, oftentimes when there's voiceover in a in a film, it's because they are too lazy or don't have the budget to show you something, so they're telling you instead. That wasn't the case here. Like the voiceover is telling you stuff while you're also being visually told the story, and it exactly. worked. It, it worked very well. Uh, to set up the the story very well, which I you know I would expect on a budget of 190 million, they would have plenty of money to show you as well as tell you. So I guess that explains that. But yeah, I I I, uh, I really enjoyed the setup for this film. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, what was the first 15 or 20 minutes where you really set up the character motivations for um, uh, for Raleigh, uh, who's played by Charlie Hunnam. So um, yeah, that that was one of the things I really really appreciated is that this film didn't feel the need to make sure you got sucked into the action right away because it had a compelling story to tell you. And it did have something that kind of worked as an action beat, but you didn't feel like you were just watching it so your attention would be on the movie. 
Yeah, I mean, like I'm, I'm all with that. Like that the the fight that we see at the beginning, you know, it isn't pointless. It's very pointful. It basically sets up the entire rest of the movie. Oh yeah, well, it, it develops uh, character motivations mm-hmm. right away. You know, you, you, there's there's a reason why Raleigh doesn't really want to get into a Jaeger again. Introduces to the drift, the consequences, and all that stuff. Yep, absolutely. So, um, why don't you tell me something you liked? Um, I love <laughs> uh, Idris Elba. Uh, I, I know that I think when you did your review, you said there were fairly unknown actors, um, and, and it stung a little because Idris Elba is my boy. Um, well, the only, only he, the only thing I've ever seen him in was Thor, and I and he had so much stuff on so, uh, that you really didn't couldn't recognize him as the same person because he had all yeah. that, that face stuff on and whatever. Yeah, and and to be fair, not recognizing him in Thor is a forgivable thing because they really they he you know he really did have all that stuff on. And it really wasn't his moment to shine, but I mean he, he is uh, he is in two of the probably the best cop shows or you know police drama shows that have ever been on TV because he's in The Wire, um, and he's in a series a BBC series called Luther, which is probably one of my current favorite TV shows. Okay. And he is amazing. And when he comes into this, he brings that air that he brings to all his roles. I mean, and his character's name is stacker Pentecost. I mean, if that's not like just one of the most, like you do not mess with me kind of names, right? <laughs> like everything about his character, his demeanor, the way he, you know, the way he plays it, uh, just, I loved every second that he was on the screen. Um, and that command he has, uh, even when he's not talking is, um, kind of as an aside, making me really looking forward to his portrayal of, of Nelson Mandela in the movie Mandela that I think is coming out next year, maybe, um, which there's a teaser out for. So you get to hear him doing that voice. And oh, it just gives me he, he's one of my new favorite male actors. I will probably go see almost anything he's in just because of his recent kind of things. I mean, w- w- the entire theater, um, especially the row of people that I was with, when he hits that scene, are we doing spoilers? I guess we're doing spoilers. Yeah, let's go ahead and say we're doing spoilers. Spoiler okay, alert. So, Here we go. Okay. It's, I mean, it's not a super spoiler, but I mean, I just want to know for later. The uh, When he hits that scene where uh, uh, Raleigh comes up and grabs his coat and he just puts his hand up and you're like, <laughs> that that boy done messed up. You know, and he's like, rule number one, don't touch me. You know, rule number two, don't, don't touch ever me. touch me. <laughs> oh, it's it's so great. And then. Then he doesn't say anything, and he just puts his fingers up to his ear. Oh, uh, I mean, like that—that that is command. And I just, like I said, I—I I was tickled to death. I felt like I don't know. I—I I don't even have words. Obviously, I love that so much. I've, Probably one of my favorite things in the entire movie. I felt like it made him out to be a bit of a jerk, which I guess maybe that was the point. I don't know, but I, I didn't like it very much. Well, see, at the time, um, he had just like. Uh, you know, they had uh, Raleigh had just drifted and he had seen, uh, you know, where Stacker like had, you know, uh, picked up or had, had fought that beast in Japan uh, and kind of was protecting. And so someone was getting really close to him. So he put on this like bravado that was, you know, swinging too far in the opposite direction. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it, it like I said, it just completely worked because if it was just his normal demeanor, yeah, it would have been too much. It would have been over the top. But seeing as he was, he was not only being his normal, like I am, I am the constant. He was, only, he was not only being the constant, but then he was being the overprotective surrogate father kind of character and trying not to let people in. So people wouldn't start to think that they could question him. I just, 
Like I said, one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. Love Idris Elba. Continue. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of, of people that you, I liked, I'm a little conflicted on this one as I'll get to when we get to dislikes. But uh, I did enjoy Ron Perlman anytime he was on the screen. He was a pretty mm-hmm. amazing. And uh, the only other film that I've seen him in, I was looking, I thought I'd seen him in something else, but, but I guess not. The only other film I've seen him in is a film that you may not even know that he was in. Although you might, you would probably know, but most people probably even wouldn't. Was uh, Star Trek Nemesis? He was uh, the Reman Viceroy, mm-hmm. uh, but but he had so much makeup on, and it was such yeah. a in, in his voice was all distorted to be Reman and everything. Uh, I thought there was something else I had seen him in, but I I can't find it. So, but but he's one. You know, there's there's like two kinds of actors. There's uh, there's the Harrison Ford kind of actor who's in big top name movies that you recognize every movie that he's been in. And then there's actors like Ron Perlman, who is a great actor, but he's been in uh, 199 movies over the course of his career, and mm-hmm. there's no way you can count them. He's just in all these movies, and uh, he 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 he's one of my favorites because he seems like he'll take almost any job, and then he doesn't just give like a half-hearted effort because he he's getting a paycheck. Like he gives all of Ron Perlman to every single role he's in, no matter how. Uh, minor or insignificant the role is and well, yeah and even though he had pretty high billing because he's one of the one of the few kind of recognizable names mm-hmm. in this film uh he really it was kind of a bit part wouldn't you say oh yeah it definitely was and i think it's i think he mostly landed this part or uh my hunch is that guillermo del toro loves to use ron perlman i mean he was in he was in the blade series he was hellboy right you know, so I think they just have a, a longstanding history. So I can almost see Guillermo del Toro writing this part for Ron Perlman. Um, and because and, and it is perfect for him, too, because every time he's on screen, it is it's gold. I mean, it's so like ridiculous and over the top um, and just plays that ridiculous over the top underworld kingpin guy. Crazy. Now, some of the things that he ends up getting into uh, weren't my favorite things in the film, but like his presence Right, his costume, his shoes, the whole thing. Yeah, we'll we'll get into to why I feel conflicted about him, but but I did enjoy him on the film, in in the film, I should say. He wasn't Mm -hmm. on, he wasn't standing on a piece of film. He was in the film. (laughs) Um, yeah, the um the this film was not afraid to make sacrifices or for the characters to make sacrifices. In the end, um, it's it's uh. You know, it's a little bit uh, heartrending the the sacrifices that need to be made, and then the relationships that you've established with these characters over the course of the film, and then you know uh, the sacrifices have to be made in order for the greater good and for uh, the the aliens to be defeated. And that's something that, even though again, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and I liked Star Trek Into Darkness, but I felt a little bit like at the end of the film, oh well, there was no other way they could resolve this because this is a franchise film and they're gonna want to make more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas I felt like, you know, going back to the man, everything's related to Star Trek. <laughs> going back to the uh, Wrath of Khan, um, it wasn't a franchise at the time. It was this is the last Star Trek film we're gonna make. Let's blow up the franchise and let's take risks and let's let's kill characters. And that's kind of lost now because studios want franchises. And here, well, um, you know, we already said spoiler alert, so here we go. Um, uh, Idris Elba's character uh, sacrificing himself in order to stop the aliens is very moving and a very uh, a good part of the film. Like this film would not have had the same emotional impact at the end of the film without that element, obviously. Oh, no, I completely agree. I actually – I was slightly disappointed, though I kind of, for those reasons, was uh, 
okay with it that in the end, you know, like Raleigh lives. I thought for me too. sure. That, me too. I, I kind of thought he was going to sacrifice himself. Well, in um, fact, that's one of my, oh, come on moments was yeah. when he came shooting up out of the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, even, even they hadn't even lost me yet when he was able to save, um, uh, Mako, right? Mako, because, yeah. because, um, yeah, okay. I buy it. I buy it. Oh, wait, mm-hmm. no, he's going to save himself. Too. Oh, come on. No, there's no way. Come on. Yeah. So but, yes, you're right. That was a little bit of, an, of a ah, oh, come on moment. But see, it, but we still because because of the the setup of dr- uh, drifting and stuff like that. We also had the the character development, um, like almost behind the scenes or as unsaid kind of actions between like the the father and son combo. So when we say when we see them say goodbye, we we see a character that we've kind of not really liked, but you know we see that there's heart there, so we lose him too. Um, and like I said, we lose who I thought, you know, the, the best character in the film was I, I, as soon as I saw Stacker Pentecost walk on the screen, I was like, there's no way he's living through this movie, <laughs> you know? So I, I did like the fact that they were willing to make sacrifices to tell the story. Yeah. Um, could have, could have lived with more sacrifices. Um, but I, at least there was something, there was some consequences. And I think, uh, I think one of your likes is one of mine as well. Uh, I love the fact that, um, Raleigh and Mako didn't have to be like in love to be a good team. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, yeah, I, I love the fact that like like after their first mission, they didn't come back and have to have sex, so we know that they were compatible. <laughs> right, exactly. You know? Yes, like, we we can see that there's a possible love interest forming. Oh, I have no doubt in the next film that this is yeah. where this is headed. But they didn't feel the need to do that right now, and and that was totally fine. I mean, right now is not the appropriate time for a romance and, and mm-hmm. that totally makes sense in the context of the film and it works very well. Uh, yeah. totally, totally. It was, it was such a relief that at the end it wasn't them like, Oh, we saved the world together. Let's make out. No, it was, uh, th- there was a little bit of a hug, but it was almost like a hug of relief and joy, you know, and then, the, you know, like buddies. Well, and especially since they, you know, it, it, it kind of brought home the concept of, you know, being in someone's mind, understanding the pain, the memories they've had, the the trials, the happiness. And so you feel connected to this person on a different level. So you don't want them. You don't want to lose them. It's like losing a piece of yourself. Right. Um, and, and so we can see that they're already tied together because what was it? Mako says that she already felt like Raleigh's pain. Yeah. Um, from when he felt his brother die. Yes. Yeah. And so I imagine that she would know what it was like, you know, or she started to have those feelings when she couldn't tell if he was living in, in the beginning. Um, and further, like, I love what Guillermo del Toro said in an interview when he said he wanted to see if he could make a story about two people liking each other without having to end in a kiss. Right. And this uh, is what the uh, alternate endings were about because he wasn't sure if it would work once he got in the edit, you know, in the edit suite and, and was cutting the mm-hmm. film, whether it would feel like they really needed – maybe they the romance did need to progress or what, if he could tell it, he would rather do it without, but he wanted to have that as an option. That's what the alternate endings were about that I mentioned earlier. So yeah. Well, um, the last thing I had, and well, I have one surprise good thing, but the the something that ended up in my good and bad categories uh, was something I just quoted as realism, um, which I think was kind of ironic to put something called realism in a a, movie about monsters and robots. (laughs) But see what we had is, uh, like I said, that that whole concept of Guillermo del Toro bringing this silly concept of life. So even though I'm watching robots and monsters fighting, like I said, I was on the edge of my seat. You know, every move had a consequence in each fight. You know, it wasn't watching, you know, 
Zod and Superman punch each other through buildings, knowing oh, neither one of them was really going to be hurt. And I, and I know you hate Man of Steel, and I'm, I am pandering a little bit because I know you'd be with me on that. One. <laughs> but you know, like every single every single miss punch or you know caught under the arm or you know non use of an extra plasma blast to make sure the monster's dead has consequences. And you know, it's one of the reasons I really liked when he goes. You want to make sure he's dead, and he goes back and yeah, we, we should we should check, and then you know, boom, 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 you know, hits him you know, three or four more times. The plasma gun basically disintegrates. It was like, yep, he's dead. Yep. <laughs> so that <laughs> was a good moment. So, so we had we had fights that had me on the edge of my seat. I mean, like literally, like I was like, what is going to happen? Because I could see, you know, we we knew that some of the Jaegers were going to lose. You know, but we never knew when. Yeah, I, I um, will say. Let, let's go ahead and this will this will kind of transition us into our dislikes because this, this is not a major dislike. This is kind of in between. Like I, I agree. Like for the most part, the the it didn't feel like uh, two superheroes punching each other without consequence because it wasn't that you had humans involved and they could be killed and the robots could be smashed and the eggers were a challenge. So it didn't feel like that. But I, there was a little bit of a oh come on moment when when. Uh, uh, when Mako says, "Oh, we, there is one more thing we could do," and the sword comes shooting out of the thing, you know, and and he and slices the monster in half, and they're way up in the middle of the atmosphere, and you're like, "Oh, seriously? Come on, that's mm-hmm. a, that's pretty cheesy." Yeah, I was and, and and why didn't you pull that out earlier? It seems very effective. <laughs> yeah, I said that that was one of my. I, I can't believe what. Why don't, we, why don't we just get that out earlier? And, and the reason I was so conflicted, I was like, I didn't really like the implementation of the sword. No. But I like the results of using the sword. Of course. Of course, so. that, that leads me to um, one of my dislikes as well, which is a Jaeger falling from that distance, basically way up nearly in orbit. And uh, there's no way that that would not have completely destroyed the Jaeger and everybody in it. <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of the few times where I felt it, this is this is the, a summer realism, blockbuster. <laughs> yeah, the realism was really thrown out the window, which is sad because like the rest of the film, I'm watching. You know, we see giant monsters, or uh, we we see you know in Star Trek, we see uh, a spaceship crashing into San Francisco, but we never see the repercussions of that, so it doesn't yeah. seem real. Yeah, and you know, in, in Super or Man of Steel, we see Zod and Superman flying through buildings, but we never see the cleanup, so it doesn't feel real. But like in right. this one. You know, monsters are dying in the middle of cities, but they're too big to be moved. So people were just building around them. There's, uh, there's the buildup of the, there's the world building of profiteering. Yeah, there's, oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. They, they had the, the, they kind of threw it in there with the, the whole kaiju fandom. You know, people, the guy getting the tattoos, uh, the, the comments about like there being religious groups thinking like this is how the world's being punished. Uh, you just like these little almost side comments that add this, that added a depth of like, oh yeah, that's probably, you know, that would be something that would happen. Uh, the concept of sure. getting, uh, tired of building big robots, um, seeing them fall occasionally and deciding that we're just going to build big walls because that's going to save us. And then when the big walls don't work, people start rioting, you know, yep, um, yep, yep. because that would happen, you know, um, Oh, I, one of my favorite things is the kaiju's are categorized and named as if they were natural disasters. Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah, it was all very uh, good. So, let's let's all, talk all that kind oh. of gave it like an air of realism. So, yep. but moving on, let's talk about uh, the film's primary conceit, which is basically. Uh, 
that that the this, these Jaegers require two pilots because their neural interfaces and the neural load is quote too much for for two for one person and so we share the neural load between two people that just doesn't make sense on any level scientifically or or otherwise to me and and so it's like come on really why how does this help I don't understand. So, okay, but okay, fine. You get over that. You're like, this is, this is kind of how the film is built. You just kind of move on past that. But then, and, and, and it, it worked well as a plot device when, you know, so the idea is that these two pilots, they enter into what's called the drift, uh, or they're drift compatible, you know, as they use the phrase in the film, and they enter into basically each other's minds and thoughts and memories, and you got to be careful not to chase the rabbit, as they say, uh, which is mm-hmm. following your memory. And that worked very well when Mako is in the, uh, in the drift for the first time. And she can't help but and, – and it was his fault. It was um, Raleigh's fault. He allowed himself to be distracted by memories of his brother, and then she was then thrown into – it was her first time drifting, and she was thrown into one of her own memories. All this worked out very well for the drama, but then that's it. We, like I expected, okay, you set up this really bad downside of the drift. Now, take that plot device and show us something really cool, like this is how they defeat the Jaegers because they're connected and they have this connection, and there's something that's going to come from that. I just know it, and it never went anywhere. Never. So frustrating. uh, Well, well, I want to say that I can sympathize with your frustration, but ultimately I'm going to disagree because I think that drifting, that whole concept – not only is it a plot device, but it's the plot device. I mean, it drives our, almost every single one of our characters' motivations. Um, it allows us to see into the mind of Stacker Pentecost. It allows us to see into the the history of Mako. Um, it also, when they point out that the more in tune two people are, that you know, the the more as one they fight, the better they fight, the better they can kill kaiju's. And that's why we see, you know, this team that finally comes together overcomes this drift setback being able to take down two kaijus where two Jaegers were just killed. Um, being able to do things that no one else has been able to do up to this point. Um, and I think mm. they could have, they could have brought it out a little bit better. They could have pointed out how like, man, we've never seen anyone fight like that in a Jaeger. You guys are so in tune. But then again, you would have had to deal with the other side of it. it was like, I really wish they didn't have to say that. So, yeah, I suppose. I, I just felt like it didn't have really a good payoff in the film, ultimately. Well, I mean, you also had the drift being able to, um, uh, I guess, create the central means to defeat or to destroy the rift in the first place. That's true, was, where where he basically, the scientist guy, drifted with, uh, with uh, the kaiju brain bits, which mm-hmm. is strange. But <laughs> Yeah, and then he had to have the other guy help him because they actually had like a full sm- – baby brain or yeah you know so it was still having to use two people to help and and like there's a theme in there that i enjoyed and you know it's like you know no man is an island you know like we we're all part of something greater and you know lots of times you can't do things by yourself yeah and i mean i just i enjoy that theme when i see it in movies um so it kind of it kind of tugged at me a little and kind of helped me overcome some of that do we really need this as a like a plot device or a driving force? But at the end, there was enough things they did with it that I didn't think they were trying to hide it or they were trying to cover it up. They kind of put it out front and they said, this is the catch. And we're going to make it at least pointful throughout the movie. 
Yeah, I can see. Like I said, it would be way, way cooler if they just got in them and they could go do their own thing. But like I said, ultimately it creates conflict between the characters and makes you care about the characters because of the the obstacles they overcome and the past that we get to explore through the drift. So okay, well, I mean, yeah, like I said, good, good and bad. Your point but. is valid. Your point is valid. I, I will concede that that point <laughs> that it is valid. That's that's all. The further I that's, will concede. That's that's all I want. Okay. Um, I have here in my notes elbow rockets. Seriously. Like, like, okay, you just stay right, you, you hang on right here, monster, while I fire up my elbow rocket to get in a good punch at your head. Just dumb. That was kind of (laughs) dumb. And this is, this is something else that's going to be in different columns for us, because I thought the elbow rocket was one of the best parts of the movie, because as my inner child, I mean, my inner (laughs) child was like, yay. You know, I think a couple of us left the movie and said, we're going to name our new band Elbow Rocket because <laughs> that was the coolest thing. And, um, I, and I actually, you know, I read uh, I read your review and I saw what you put next to the Elbow Rocket. And I think if that was how I remember the situation, because um, you described a situation and we're like, let's just hope the bad or, you know, the kaiju stand still and let's get hit in the face with the Elbow Rocket punch. Right. Um, and that's the way I, it seemed to me <laughs> at, at the time. He was kind of doing that Michael Bay face punching. Yes. That one monster and kind of had him with one hand and then went in for like the uh, what I would call the haymaker. And I think the the cut didn't help the the like the congruousness of the scene uh, because I think the cut made it sound like they stopped fighting and they activated the elbow rocket when I think it was more of a he's talking in his head and saying, let's do the elbow rocket when the next punch is coming forward. And then, you know, it just gives it a little more oomph. I never, you know, whatever you have to tell yourself to make this a good, to spin this into a good part of the movie. That's fine. I understand. You know, I understand that I've gone to great lengths to make this sound awesome. (laughs) Yes. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Okay. Let's talk about gypsy danger. The gypsy danger admittedly is a very awesome name for a Jaeger. I, I really like the name, but okay. So at the beginning of the film, gypsy danger is practically destroyed. Um, and uh, and then when they bring Raleigh back uh, to pilot uh, uh, a Jaeger, lo and behold, there's Gypsy Danger. They've rebuilt her, and oh the oh the joy of being reunited with my machine. What what was I mean? I, it seems a little bit like um, I don't know. Like why are we focusing on Gypsy Danger and what's so special? Like she was practically destroyed. Why can't we have Gypsy Danger too? I mean, I, I don't know. It's just a little weird, you know. Like we and, and we as the audience never really felt a connection with the machine. Why are we making a big deal out of it? Well, I don't exactly. I wish there were some things because I felt like something was left out. Like, did they repair Gypsy Danger and Gypsy Danger was used even though Raleigh kind of left the service, um, and then he came back and it just happens to be working? Or was it one of the ones that they realized they could fix for cheap? And since they were already having to to go to the black market to kind of get parts and stuff that maybe it was just cheaper to fix this old one that was like missing, missing an arm, you know, and kind of had a hole in its chest than actually building one from scratch. And they never addressed that. I wasn't really connected in the fact that like, we're supposed to love gypsy danger. Just right, right. That's, what old one. that's what I'm saying. Like we weren't but, connected in that way. It didn't make any sense. Yeah. But like at that time, I, it, it was nice to see something familiar. It w- I mean, I feel like if he was going to bring this guy back, he probably had a reason and definitely not one of the things I think was 
one I mean, of the strong, strongest or best explained in the movie. But I mean, it's not like point, we're it's not like we're talking about the Starship Enterprise here. It's not like that yeah. gut wrenching feeling. Like I said, everything goes back to Star Trek. It's not like that <laughs> gut wrenching feeling I got at the you know in Star Trek Three when the thing is plummeting down to the planet to to her doom. You know, well I, maybe it's uh, maybe it's because uh, I feel like that's what they were trying to do is evoke that same sort of thing for Gypsy Danger that we feel for the Enterprise. What is the, the word? It's like clandestine. Because if they wouldn't have done it, then they wouldn't have had the uh, one of my least favorite things in the movie. The the I don't want to call it a plot hole necessarily, but the oh, it just so happens that the Type Three or whatever was analog. Everything else is digital. It just so happens because yeah. because we make so many analog things in the year two thousand thirteen, fourteen, fifteen when the kaiju started coming around. Right? I mean, of course exactly. it would be analog. Of course it would be. <laughs> So, I mean, so if, like I said, if it wasn't predestined to have been rebuilt, then the human race may have been destroyed because there would have been nothing that could have stood up against the digital disaster. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you're, yeah, that was one I didn't write down, but you're absolutely right. Um, okay, one more thing. And some of this may seem a little bit nitpicky, but it's like, really, could you not have done this a little better? And that is that these robots tower over some of our tallest buildings in the world, right? And they're carried around by five or six little helicopters with these little cables. No big deal, right? I mean, they're just carried around with helicopters and dropped off where they need to be fighting at. Yeah, well, right. Yeah, I was wondering how, um, how how the helicopters had that much lift. I know helicopters they don't. <laughs> maybe maybe in maybe in twenty twenty they do. Uh huh. Sure. Well, and see, here's the, one of the things. Like, I, I didn't um, I didn't really care. I, I I did care about how the how could the helicopters actually carry them, but I didn't mind that the Jaegers were being carried to the battle site. Because I imagine being carried to the uh, or walking to the battle site maybe expended too much energy, um, or maybe yeah, but, you know, they would have had to walk through places again, where they things, would obviously destroy. These things are freaking huge. How do you? How do these little hel- helicopters carry them? I mean, it's not possible. <laughs> so, so your only problem with it is that little helicopters carried a big Jaeger. Not that the Jaegers just didn't walk there themselves. Uh, well, sure. Yeah. But essentially I'm just saying the laws of physics dictate that this is an impossible thing that they okay. did. <laughs> and, and seriously, let, let's get, this is such a little detail they could have gotten right. Um, okay. Two more things that I have on the dislikes. And one is that I'm sorry, uh, the scientist bit ridiculous, a little bit ridiculous. I mean, sure. I, I like, 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 I didn't mind the idea that these two mad scientists, you know, Charlie Day and and what's his name, were were, were kind of crazy. But it was just a little too much, like over the top. I it really started grating on me. The uh, I think if you watch more uh, Del Toro stuff, then you almost see that's like something he kind of likes to have around. And I thought that more is a a Del Toro flavor thing, though. Though. At times, their little side story, I think, took away from exactly the, the gravity of the, the movie. Exactly. Um, it was just too much. It, you know, they need, Del Toro needed to tone it down. <laughs> you need to tone down your silly movie about monsters. <laughs> it always goes back to that. Like, it's hard to tell somebody that they're being silly when they're making a movie about robots and monsters. Yeah, you, you do have a fair point, but I just felt like it, it, it tonally, it just felt weird. One more thing, one more thing, and then we'll see if you have anything else to add. Um, Can you tell me what the heck Ron Perlman was doing in this movie, why he was in it, what his part was? Why did we need him? (sighs) Just because he was funny? 
Yeah, probably. <laughs> I, I can't figure out how you, really you remove him from the movie and nothing changes. Well, there, I think there are parts that the, he really adds to the movie conceptually, but I think by the time he gets eaten, I, I'm, I don't need him on the screen anymore. Well, that's why he was eaten, which it was funny, no doubt. And, and yeah. oh man, that really, uh, sure. And it made for a great credit scene of him ripping his way, spoiler alert, ripping his way yeah. out of the monster so that he can come back for the sequel. <laughs> but seriously, like, I wanted, I liked him and I wanted him to be in the movie. Please give him something to do. Yeah. I, I really thought that he would kind of, th- that character would be taken a little bit further. But after yeah, that, first I wanted him to be. Because, like I said, I think I think if they were going to go with the whole black market, which is what I thought was a great idea to have like the black market kind of paying for this uh, funding the Jaeger program after it had been discontinued, I like that idea, and I like to have kind of like a slimy face on the uh, on the black market. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I thought Ron Perlman was the perfect face to put on it. Sure. And I thought he played it great. But after that first introduction, I'm not really sure why we kept going back to him as like a because I don't really think he added any kind of uh, knowledge. Well, like um, I said, I just wanted them to give him something in the plot is, is all I wanted, and then I would have been fine. But that you know, that's it. That's all I have really for the likes and dislikes. Do you, what do you, that's, you got anything? That's else? For Pacific Rim too. <laughs> yeah. What, do you have anything else you liked or didn't like about the film? Um. Do, 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 do. He's, he's no, looking I mean, over his list. Hang on a minute. I here. am looking over my list. I think I, hit, I mean, like you said, that most of it was just that realism stuff. We, we we hit on most of the things that. Uh, um, oh no, here something that I did not like, and this is to me like the nitpickiest of Nikki or nitpick, nitpickiest of nitpickiness, and it's that like when that when uh, uh, Stacker Pentecost shows up in the helicopter at the wall at the beginning of the movie to find Raleigh. Raleigh just walks out by himself and is like, obviously they're here for me. And he like he walks right to them like Obviously. they find each other. I was like, just, like have a phone conversation or something. Why why are we doing this random? Well, I think like, I think the phone. problem is there was not telephones in this reality in in, in <laughs> 2020 because why didn't the scientists just phone in the problem and say, hey, no, this is not going to work. You know, you can't just drop a nuke down there. And instead, they're rushing to make sure they get there and tell them. You know, <laughs> was also wondering that as well. So. But like I said, in the grand scheme of things, not that big a deal. I, I was so pleased with you know the concept being a- adapted in a in a, an enjoyable and non silly way that I can let things like that slide. I've let yeah. worse slide. Yeah, for sure. It's not a big deal. Those those things are not a big deal. You're right. It was a little nitpicky. <laughs> Welcome to the club. We like to be nitpicky. <clears throat> all right. Well, I I review. I think you need to you know you just put throw it all out there, and that's why you have a final word. You know. Yep. Yep. Well, I gave the film a four of five stars. Can you translate your whatever the rating is, your rating system is? Can you translate that into a ten point scale for us? I think it it, it would. Um, I I would have to say I probably give it four stars, um, leaning towards four and a half. Mm-hmm. But I think with the, with the the way that I was using with the letter grades, I think it ended up being like a four point two five. Right. Okay. So I mean, like I said, I I'm wavering between the two. Uh, okay. I mean, because because there are some movies that I would give four stars to, and I would say that this is a little bit better, um, but it's not quite you know almost perfect. Would you recommend that people see this film? 
I think they should be watching it right now. I think they should have stopped listening to this podcast about an hour and a half ago, and they should have gotten their car, get on their bike, and just go see this movie. I want to go see it again. Yeah, I'm going to have to cut that out of the, of the show because I never <laughs> recommend that anybody stops listening to my podcast. I want them to put it on repeat. Come on. But, come on, man. They, you're killing but, me here. But they've already listened to the podcast. It's too late. We've already won. <laughs> we've, we've won them in. All right. All right. So um, IMDb rates it 7.9 out of 10. That's the uh, average rating of the users. Um, Rotten Tomatoes, the critics give it 71%, which is quite amazing for a summer blockbuster. Really, <laughs> seriously. Critics uniting to give a summer blockbuster a 71% rating. That's pretty different. Um, now, audiences have given it an 86%. So there's some sort of disparity here between the rating of the audience that, uh, on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb versus how much money it made at the box office is a little bit mm-hmm. strange. Um, but anyway, yes, I I definitely recommend this film uh, as one of the better films to come out so far this summer. Uh, in fact, the only movie I'm, I'm sure there may have been another I can't remember the only movie I can think of off the top of my head that I've rated higher than it than this film this year was 42, which is not an action film at all, but was a great mm-hmm. film. So definitely worth checking out and. Um, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. I know I have several uh, family-oriented folks who listen to this podcast, and uh, if uh, if you're interested in checking out a movie that you know you want to take your older kids to see, uh, the, you know, like like some people ask me sometimes, what about you know what about the language in this such and such a movie? I I, I don't remember that much language in this film, so really the only reason it was rated PG-13 was for some of the intense action and the robots mm-hmm. and monsters smashing each other up. So, uh, pretty good film. I I really did enjoy it. Fun for the whole family, yeah. as long as that family is thirteen and over. Yeah, I was gonna say, don't, don't, you know, <laughs> don't take your little kids. It's pretty intense, but you know. <clears throat> All right, well, that's uh, that's it for the podcast and for the review next week. Uh, assuming that this is uh, that Chad is back with us and that it is good with Chad, we will be talking about Red Two and R.I.P.D. Uh, those are the two films that currently we're planning on talking about. And uh, yeah, so uh, Mike, where can people uh, check out your work and keep up with you and stalk you and follow you and, and figure out what you're doing online and stuff? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Physification. Um, I usually have uh, you know over opinionated things to say about the movies I go see, um, which is why I enjoy doing podcasts like this. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I started following you on Twitter and I haven't died yet, so I guess it's a recommended <laughs> procedure. Um, uh, you can uh, you can also follow me at the the main site that I do right now is Real World Theology R E E L um, World Theology. I hear um, you just recorded a podcast. I have not had a chance to listen yet. Yeah, I'm I'm actually a little bit disappointed because I had some mic issues in the middle of it, and I didn't realize to the end. But you know, podcast people problems. You know. Yeah. Yep. But uh, it I, we we just we just re uh, we just did our review of Much Ado About Nothing. Oh, cool. Um, Joss Whedon's uh, retelling of it, and that That's went really well. Good. I finally um, got to see that. So. So yeah, and one of my favorite movies of the summer, um, if not my favorite movie of the summer um, so yeah, far. I think it was my wife's, but I'm, I'm not a huge <laughs> Shakespeare nut, but she is, so. Um, but we hit that, uh, like I said, we, we just take a look at movies uh, and kind of throw in some of the theological themes that we see behind yeah. the movie. Uh, if So if you're into that thing, go to realworldtheology.com. You can find us on iTunes at Real World Theology. Um, I believe our next podcast is going to be on Despicable Me Too, if I'm not mistaken. Cool. Um, so like I said, if you're interested in that, uh, check me out. Follow me on Twitter. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, interact with me. If, it, if it means anything to our listeners, I'm subscribed to the Real World Theology podcast and have enjoyed all, uh, what have you done, three episodes so far? I'm trying to yeah. remember. So I've enjoyed the ones that I've heard. No, I think I've only listened to two, right? You, the third one is one you oh, just did. Yeah, the third one, yeah. Yeah. So, but I've enjoyed both of those. I'm expecting to enjoy this one. Uh, so make sure to check that out. Um, 
If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that. I am TJ Draper Pro. If you uh, would like to, you can follow Movie Byte on Twitter, where we tweet out every everything to do with with the Movie Byte website, with the podcast, and all that stuff. At uh, we are just Movie Byte over there. You can also like Movie Byte on Facebook, facebook.com slash moviebyte. You can find the uh, show notes for this episode at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 52 because this is our 52nd episode. We have turned uh, basically a year old. Actually, I was just looking at I meant to mention this at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, we released the first episode on July 20th of last year. So, woohoo, we're basically a year old. Yay. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's been a fun time. Uh, speaking of that, though, we, we still uh, crave your ratings on iTunes to help us get uh, more noticeability. You can uh, just search for Movie Byte uh, when you go to the iTunes store uh, in iTunes and uh, search for Movie Byte, and our podcasts will come up. Then you can click on the Movie Byte podcast and give us a five star rating. Um, leave us a glowing review, and uh, we would really appreciate that, and uh, that, that helps us out a lot. Well, that is it for this week. We're looking forward to reviewing Red 2 and RIPD next week. Hope you all have a good week. Bye-bye.